Julia Gerlach, Executive Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the No-Till Farmer podcast series brought to you today by the Andersons. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, the Google Play Store, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about new episodes when they're released. I'd like to take a moment to thank the Andersons for sponsoring today's episode. Take back your nutrients with BioReverse from the Andersons. Stock degradation is an essential part of no-till field management. BioReverse is a robust microbial package designed to significantly reduce residue stubble prior to the next cropping season. The application of BioReverse following harvest released 10 times more nutrients than fields left untreated. With a two-year shelf life and easy handling, BioReverse is ideal for every operation. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash BioReverse for more information. Despite the soil health benefits of many cover crops, getting farmers to adopt them without cost share or subsidies can sometimes be a tricky proposition, as cover crops frequently add to costs but don't add to the bottom line. Relay cropping, interseeding, double cropping, and polycropping are all examples of ways farmers are planting cover crop species but bringing them to harvest rather than terminating them. When it works, they're able to improve soil ecosystems and improve profits at the same time. For this episode of the No-Till Farmer podcast, we chat with Ross Evelsizer of Iowa Resource Conservation and Development. As the director of the organization's Multi-Cropping Iowa project, Evelsizer works with growers around the state to implement cropping systems that help achieve soil health goals while also expanding market opportunities. Tune in to hear Ross discuss some of the common multi-cropping rotations farmers are implementing, how they're adapting equipment and timing to get those extra crops into the rotation and harvested, the impacts multi-cropping can have on flood mitigation and nutrient loss reduction strategies, and more. So my name is Ross Kohlsizer and I am a Natural Resources Projects Director here at Northeast Iowa Resource Conservation and Development and our office is in Coldsville, Iowa. And so I work on a lot of projects related to watershed management and kind of large scale, you know, landscape planning and through the course of, of that work, started working on a lot of projects that were, you know, farmer focused and, you know, we have a lot of private land. Uh, a lot of agricultural production in Iowa. And so anytime you're talking about landscape management or watershed management or whatever, you know, it always comes back to to working with producers and and non-private land. So so that's kind of what we're focused on now and started a project called Multi-Copying Iowa about two and a half, three years ago, focused on sort of regenerative practices as one of those tools to make watersheds more resilient to flooding and water quality issues that uh, that we face so okay so tell us some more about the multi-cropping iowa project that you're working on i'm very curious to hear the scope of it how many farmers are you working with and what sort of goals are you working toward yeah so um it kind of started out of just uh, an idea based on what i saw on a farm that I was working at, we were actually doing tile outlet monitoring for water quality through a separate project. And through one of the former farmers that we were working with there, Lauren we I saw what he was doing and, and he had started doing what is known as relay cropping. We plant a small grain in the fall and soybeans in the spring, and then you end up harvesting both crops. And I saw what he was doing and, you know, got to talking to him about it more. And it seemed like kind of a crazy idea at the time, but 
as we dug into it more, it made a lot of sense because he was getting, you know, a lot of the soil health benefits of like cover crops and no-till, but doing it in a way that was more profitable. And I really like that idea. And so we kind of pursued that. We did some background uh, meetings and stuff like that to test whether this would be something other producers would be interested in. And there was a lot of interest. I was really blown away by how many producers were really interested in doing it. And so from that point, we wrote a few different grants and started working on it. And just a few years ago, Lauren was probably the only farmer that I knew of that was practicing relay cropping in Iowa. I knew there was others around the country, but I don't. I only knew of him doing it in Iowa. Since that time, we've been able to recruit other producers that were you know, forward thinking and um, willing to take some risks and try something new. And we've been setting up trials on their places and monitoring the economics of the practice and how it works, how it impacts the soil. And this year we actually have, I think, 15 trials um, that we're actively working on. And so that's just, you know, in the third year of the project, we went from basically one producer to 15. And I know there's a lot of other people that we're not doing trials with, you know, that have tried it as well based on, you know, what they're seeing other producers do. So it's been really great. I'm interested in the standpoint of, you know, is this something that, you know, the, the overall goal is, is, is this something that the, the middle of the curve, the, the bulk of the producers, average run-of-the-mill farm that you'd find in Iowa, can this, is this something they can take on and, and incorporate it into their management system? And so we've been really open to, you know, the way that files are set up letting farmers kind of steer that direction, letting them answer those questions. And so far we've had people try it a lot of different ways and not all of those are completely successful, but we learn something every time. And I think that's the, the biggest thing. And so if we can get to a point, I guess the goal, you know, the overall goal of this project is to get to a point where we can incorporate or we can see farmers implementing enough, you know, practices that are, improving soil health and can have a positive environmental impact and do it at scale. And when I mean at scale, I mean like enough acres to start to change that, you know, that water quality narrative, that flood mitigation narrative in a different direction than it is right now and do it in a way that's not costing dollars or through incentive programs or something like that, where we have to pay people to, to get them to do anything. That's not sustainable, but if people are doing it on their own because better for the farm, it's better for their, operation and that's that's how i can see it really ramping up so that's the underlying goal to, to all of this is making making these practices um you know more accessible to, to more people and luckily we have a lot of great farmers involved that they're willing to take the chances here to, to help to answer some of those questions and then share that you know sharing is you know sharing that information is the, probably the biggest part yeah yeah that's fantastic well, it sounds like a great project. I'd love for you to just talk a little bit more about actually defining what is multi-cropping. Uh, you talked about relay cropping that Lauren was doing. What else falls under that umbrella? Yeah, so we use that term for the reason that it's really vague. Um, and so it can kind of encapsulate a lot of different things. I guess if I had to define it, it differs from just saying regenerative agriculture. It differs from you know covered crops and the fact, I guess, loosely to define it as you're growing and harvesting more than one crop off the same field in the same year. And so there's different ways that people are doing that or can do that. Double cropping is, you know, another way. So that's essentially where you're, you, you know, you plant and harvest a crop and then follow it up with a second crop right after that. But it's planted after the first crop is harvested. Relay cropping is a little different 
they're very similar, I should say, but it's a little different in them. You know, there's an overlapping growing season. So you're planting the second crop actually right into that first crop. And then there's companion cropping or intercropping, polycropping. Those are basically where you're growing and harvesting everything kind of at the same time. So there's different ways to, to go about it. Ultimately, you know, we're looking at things that kind of follow those principles of soil health. Um, those are, you know, it doesn't have to be that way, but that's what we would like. You know, people are going to do this. We, we like to see those, you know, see it be beneficial for the soil. So, you know, I guess the first thing would be that it, it's more than one crop at a time. And then the second thing would be that it's done in sort of a regenerative um, fashion. So that's it's beneficial for the soil and for, for the environment. Relay cropping seems to be the most popular, at least in Iowa, simply because it's maybe the easiest transition for what farmers are used to doing to what they, you know, they can easily transition, especially people that are doing cover crops and no-till is really the exact same process for a lot of them. It's just simply not terminating the cereal grain in the spring and harvesting it in, in the midsummer instead. So that's a pretty easy transition. So that's kind of where we're focusing right now, just because, you know, that seems to be the, the most popular. But we have a couple other farmers that have tried like a wide row corn with like a forage, multi-species forage crop in between, and you know, harvesting that or a couple others that are a little more obscure. But I think there's a lot of different options. A lot of that is dictated really by what there's a market for. Um, it's not more profitable if you can't sell it to anybody. So it's still a commodity-based system. And, and so cereal grains are not as marketable as corn and soybeans, but they're more marketable than you know, something that people aren't used to growing at all. So that's another factor that we have to look into, I guess. Yeah. So kind of talk a little bit about why somebody would want to do this and some of the benefits that they would see. I mean, obviously, if they're able to sell a second crop in the same year, they're going to be potentially anyways making more money. But what other benefits are you seeing and, and how does that tie in with regenerative? Yeah. So, you know, following the, depending on where you look, the five or six principles of soil health where you're you know keeping something growing there year round and keeping the soil covered and uh, diversifying your your species mix um this doesn't incorporate the livestock aspect of soil health uh, principles but um certainly um it is an option um it's just not something that we have a lot of participants doing right now what this particular practice does is particularly with producers using cereal rye uh, in a relay system, cereal rise a natural weed suppressant and on its own. And then the fact that you have a lot of the times with the field layout. In a normal monocrop field of soybeans, for instance, you would have a row every 15 or 30 inches. And there's a gap there. And that's where you see weed pressure, right? So, you know, that's Mother's Nature's way of fixing exposed soil is by growing weeds there. That's the first thing that's, that's available to grow up out of that seed bank. So um, by having the rye there to fill that space in between the soybean rows, you are already way ahead of, uh, of a monocrop system just by having that, you know, you have something growing there. So the, uh, I know that the, a lot of the farmers that are doing this are seeing a lot of benefits in terms of weed biker control and doing it without herbicides. So, so there's a cost savings there, potentially reducing herbicide needs. And then also just once you know, once that rye crop or small grain crop is harvested, then you have uh, natural ground cover, you know, almost like a mulch uh, between the soybeans. Uh, so that works really well. 
and then there's something growing there all the time, you're adding a third crop into a, if you have a corn soybean rotation, you can incorporate a, a third crop into a two-year system. So you're diversifying a little bit there. And so there's a lot of benefits in terms of, you know, soil health principles. One thing that we're looking at well, that we're particularly interested in is how it can change because it's changing the soil structure, how much that can actually impact water infiltration. Um, and that's kind of where you get the, the flood benefit. So we actually have hydro stations that measure soil moisture and precipitation. Then that is used to estimate evapotranspiration. And then we're working with the Iowa Flood Center out of the University of Iowa and Iowa City. And they'll be able to take that information and, and then expand that to the watershed level and say, um, so we have the hydro station, one is in a relay cropping field where it's been, you know, regenerative relay cropping for the last five or six years. And the other one is in a conventional corn field that's been continuous corn for over a decade. And so we'll see those two, the difference in how water moves through each of those systems. And then hopefully we'll be able to say, you know, if, if this watershed, you know, if it rains six inches on this watershed and most of the agriculture fields in that watershed are in the conventional system, it's going to do this. And if it's in a regenerative system like relay cropping, then it's going to react differently. So the same six inches of rain fell on two watersheds that were farmed completely differently. They'll likely be, um, based on what we've seen and small trial tests, they'll likely be a pretty significant difference in how that watershed responds to larger rainfall. And ultimately, we'll probably see a, a fairly substantial reduction in the water coming up quickly and then going back down. You know, that's a big deal in terms of being able to, to manage flooding at the landscape level. So can you sort of give us a snapshot of what those differences are between the conventionally managed field and regeneratively managed in terms of the water infiltration? Yeah, yeah. so in the conventional field, that typically when we, I guess I'm referring to that, you know, you're talking about annual fillage, maybe multiple passes per year and intensive inputs in, in terms of fertilizer and herbicides and pesticides and fungicides and those sorts of things. So what happens over time is that that soil structure starts to break down. And so that soil is not able to, to take on the water like um, a healthy functioning soil can. Um, I think there's a you know an estimate by NRCS or and, and some others that for every 1% of organic matter in the soil, you can estimate an extra inch of rainfall can be infiltrated in that soil. So just that's kind of a crude way of estimating um, soil infiltration, but um, just based on those kind of basic principles, the, you know, in a regenerative system, there's no, there's no tillage and way less chemical inputs. And so there's far less disturbance and you start to see that soil be able to take on uh, a lot more water. You know, we had a field that we were actually measuring just based on, you know, where you have a, a metal ring and you pour the water in and measure and then time how long it takes that to soak in. You do it one inch at a time. And in even fields that were just no-till or no-till and cover crops, it was somewhere around, I think the second inch was around two and a half minutes. And then we went over and did the same thing in a, in a relay cropping field and we were able to still soak in the fourth inch of rainfall in, in just a little over two minutes. And so if you could think about that, if you could take on, because we get a lot bigger rains now. So if you could take a four inch rainfall and just soak all of that in versus 
when it hit the conventional field and it's not able to soak it in. So then it runs off really quickly and it's carrying that soil with it and it's plugging up our streams and damaging infrastructure. Yeah, if you could take four and visit and soak it in instead of running it off, that would be that would be beneficial. Yeah, definitely. Well, and I want to talk about um, the economics of it a little bit more in a little bit, but I first would like you to just talk about the risks a little bit more. So obviously you're saying there's costs involved. So what, what other kind of risks are farmers faced with if they wanted to try and approach multi-cropping? Yeah, well, um, so it's, you know, it's a different, you know, it's a different approach. Um, so I guess the, especially in Northern climates, um, and I'm in Northern Iowa. So, and so we even see variation from the participants that we have doing this in the Northern part of the state versus the Southern part of the state. And, you know, in terms of the small grain, it is way more um, effective, way, you get a way better crop, it seems like, if the sooner you can get that crop planted in the fall. Well, that poses issues in Northern Iowa where we're, sometimes we're not harvesting until, you know, even November, and then trying to get something planted after that and then hope you're basically just planting it and then hope it comes up in the spring. You're probably not going to get a much emergence in the fall. So, you know, whether that's a factor in any type of production, but it's definitely more of a consideration. Um, it's an, you know, it's another consideration with this. And then of course, you know, this year we, in Iowa, we've been extremely dry. And that's another place where you see concerns with having, you know, especially for the bean crop, is the small grain crop that's out there gonna sabotage that bean crop because you know there's only so much moisture to go around so in a dry year is that gonna cause issues and i guess you know we'll see how that plays out this year i've heard varying results from producers but you know the moisture levels across the state and, and where the plots are that we have are very very different so we'll see how that plays out and hopefully we can answer that question a little better but I think the benefit of relays in terms of weather is that we've, you know, we've had people, they've looked at it as they're making decisions based on the conditions. And it's not all, you know, you know all your eggs aren't in the one basket for only, you know, if it's only good for soybeans or only good for corn, and that's the only, you know, that's the only thing that you're, that you're farming for, then that's, you need conditions just for that. Whereas with this system, you get a, late planted cereal grain and you'd like to do relay cropping and then you get a poor stand then just terminate it and it's a cover crop and then you plant your your soybeans into it and there you go and you're off and, and it's no big deal and then on the flip side if you have a situation like we've had in the last few years a, a couple of different times where it's super wet but you were able to get something planted in the fall and then it's super wet in the spring and you know people are worried about getting getting that cash crop planted, well, you already have a crop out there. Um, and so, hey, if you don't get the, the other second crop in, you've already got something in the ground and you're one step ahead. So there's a lot of different ways. I think it just allows for some flexibility, you know, in terms of weather, which is always good. Um, there's other risks or I guess things that we have to sort out. Um, there's risks in terms of insurability um, for those that, that want to utilize crop insurance. It's not that you can't infer relay cropping or double cropping, but in most cases, if you're taking to be able to insure both crops with crop insurance for one year, 
that's not allowable as things stand right now, unless you're able to provide data over a series of time to show that that works on your farm. We're working with the risk management agency to make sure what you can and can't do in terms of crop insurance right now. But they're also very flexible. So there are provisions within crop insurance that they will augment if there's enough demand and data to show how it should be changed. And so, you know, if we if enough people start doing this, it will show that, you know, it's an incurable practice and hopefully down the road, then then that's not something that's something that we can, you know, we can see it crop insurance available for. You know, one other thing I guess to touch on would be equipment. Um, that's a big question, uh, whether or not people can do it with equipment that they have. And so that's a, that's another risk, you know, it's, it's whether or not having, having, having the right equipment and being able to do it effectively. So. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I want you to also just walk me through what you were talking about earlier with people doing relay cropping. Um, so they have the cereal rye and then they plant, like you said, soybeans, for instance. And then just explain to me what the timing would be in terms of the harvest and how do they get that done when there's a growing soybean crop there right in between the rows. So just talk about what sort of changes a farmer needs to make in order to make all of that happen. Yeah, so, um, you know, and that seems to be kind of based on the equipment that each producer has and, you know, how it works in their system. I would say on average, most of the people that we know that are trying that are doing something where they're keeping soybeans at 30 inch rows and then usually some windrows of the cereal grain in that 30 inch space between the soybean rows. And, you know, it's much easier if you have UPS guided uh, steering system to stay on track and make sure everything's spaced out really nice and neat. Um, but it's not totally necessary. We have people doing without it. So, and then when, when coming back to harvest, so the small grain, whether wheat or rye is typically going to be ready about midsummer. So most actually right, right about um, now and, and we're at July 9th. And so most of these um, fields that our relay are going to be harvested in the next probably two weeks. So yeah, the beans are up, you know, a lot of them are getting pretty tall. Cereal rye grows quite tall. So a lot of it's four to five, almost five feet tall, some of it. And so harvest that and guys are using different, different combine heads to do that. We have some people that are using the uh, row crop heads and some, you know, the other way. So, um, but they're typically just coming across the top and cutting it a little bit higher, so cutting the cereal grain a little bit higher so that you're not cutting the soybeans at all. Some people will come with, um, you can get like paddles or some sort of, some people use drain and tile even to over the, over the spacing where you're gonna go across the soybean rows just to make sure that that cutting bar doesn't nip the soybeans at all. And, it's okay if they get roughed up a little bit, but it's not good if they get cut, um, is what a lot of people are seeing. The other thing is that a lot of people are using um, a longer season bean, so they're planting actually an earlier bean planting date than, than what you'd see if it was just a, a monocrop field, which is interesting. But what that does is it keeps that bean um, growing a little bit slower and allows for the rye to get up and get going without the bean getting too 
making that, you know, there's a bigger gap there than to harvest that, that small grain. So, and then the soybean harvest is just, you know, when, when it normally be done, and, you know, in, in the fall and October when it be ready. So I'd say the biggest differences are in terms of variety, especially for beans, is that people are having more success with a longer season bean. And then maybe, uh, I think on average, a lot of guys are saying now, um, like a full gap above what you would normally plant if you were doing just a mono season or a mono field. So um, that's a big consideration. And then, yeah, the, the combine head is, you know, whatever you can get your hands on, I guess, to, to get it done. Um, we've seen in a variety of ways, like I said. Uh-huh. Okay, interesting. We'll get back to Ross Evelsizer in a moment, but I want to take time once again to thank our sponsor, The Andersons, for supporting today's episode. Take back your nutrients with BioReverse from The Andersons. Stock degradation is an essential part of no-till field management. BioReverse is a robust microbial package designed to significantly reduce residue stubble prior to the next cropping season. The application of BioReverse following harvest released 10 times more nutrients than fields left untreated. With a two-year shelf life and easy handling, BioReverse is ideal for every operation. Visit andersonsplantnutrient.com forward slash BioReverse for more information. Now, let's get back to Ross Evelsizer as he talks about the economics of multi-cropping. So we've talked about the uh, rye and the soybeans. What other crop combinations are farmers doing in these kind of scenarios? We've seen a lot of winter wheat, any small grain, you know, because soybeans are a legume, any small grain, uh, which is a grass, goes well with soybeans. So we've had, you know, winter wheat and cereal rye, which are fall planted grains, obviously work well. But we've seen people try barley and oats. So spring planted barley and spring planted oats that have been uh, tried and worked pretty pretty well, um, you know, along the same, same lines, I guess, same principles. And then some people have tried like wide row corn where it's like 60 or even 120 and spacing on the corn rows with then some sort of, um, you know, multi-species forage mix planted in between. You know, the wider gap in the corn rows is necessary because um, corn planted at, you know, and I suppose the, the average, at least around here, is probably 30 inch rows. And, and once that canopies, it's just really hard to have anything grow uh, with a corn. Um, and obviously corn is a a grass species as well so it doesn't um, play nice with any of the small grain species so i'm waiting for somebody to try corn and soybeans together uh but nobody's tried that i was uh, wondering about that if it, yeah, i mean why not but another one is uh soybeans and buckwheat and that was actually done more as a um more of a double crop thing so they that was actually the third crop for that field so it was a relay system and then a farm harvest of the small grain in the summer, then they came back, they followed that and planted buckwheat into the soybeans after the small grain was harvested. And then the buckwheat was harvested with the soybeans and then separated after harvest. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so some people are doing that where they're actually harvesting things together and then separating them after. Yep. 
fact. Yeah. And you see this, and you see this all over the world. So, um, you know, we're trying, we're pretty, it feels like we're doing something crazy, but we're really not doing anything that crazy here in Iowa. But you see like, so based on our social media following, we have people from all over the world that have, you know, followed along. And, and so you see different things and people are doing like, you know, Eola up in, um, Saskatchewan where they're growing peas and canola together. And, um, I saw soybeans and coffee beans and like Argentina. So the sky's the limit. It's just a matter of what you can get marketability and figure out how to grow together. So there's the, the combinations are endless if, if somebody's willing to try. Yeah. Well, you know, it seems to me like we see a lot of relay or double cropping, triple cropping in the vegetable world and in the organic world, right? I mean, they, they do a lot more of this kind of thing. So it's neat to see this um, being applied in row crops. It's pretty cool. It sounds like people are doing all sorts of different things. Is there anything that you're seeing that works really well or absolutely didn't work? No, we haven't seen anything completely fail, at least in terms of a layout. I mean, we have we have one farmer that's trying it and he's doing, he simply planted, he drilled in the small grain in the fall when um, I think seven, six or seven inch rows and then just came back and planted beans with the same exact planter. And there was no alteration, you know, alternating rows or anything. Just plant it all right together. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, that was our best plot last year in terms of the trials that we had. He was within a, a bushel and a half per acre on the soybeans and still took 30 bushel an acre of cereal rye off the same field. So he made a lot of money off that trial and, and did it in a way that, you know, they just used the planter that they had and didn't worry about the, the alternating rows. So, so far... Where we had failures um, in terms of where we just, you know, the relay didn't work out. Um, it's usually been the rye or the small grain that was the, the issue where the sand just wasn't sufficient to, to mess with them trying to harvest it. Um, so the producer wasn't comfortable leaving it to, to harvest. And it's usually been weather related. Um, and, you know, especially here in the northern part of Iowa, it's, it's you know, it kills off in the winter at times and um or some you know especially when it's not able to get in early enough in the fall it seems like that's where we run into problems and like i said you know that's where it's like well the essentially it's just treated as a cover crop they terminate it plant the beans and and move on and it's not a complete loss so it's just handled a little bit differently so can you just talk a little bit more about the economics of it um talk about the cost versus the income that farmers are seeing with the multi-cropping sure so uh, that was you know maybe the most important selling point that we have um for this practice and so that was definitely something that we wanted to look at um that was what got my attention in the first place is is why this could work because you know looking at cover crops and things like that it's really hard to stomach that cost particularly for somebody that's new to cover crops and you know it may yield a little bit and then all they see is this bill at the end of, you know and so the, it reduces the bottom line um by whatever that cost is and then you have an extra herbicide pass and, and everything so it's hard to stomach that cost so that was definitely one of the things that we wanted to look at and so we've just been kind of trying to keep track of a basic field budget for all the relay trials that we're doing and then compare that to you know some non-crop field for the same producer and, and then see how that compares and you know looking at you know again everybody's kind of taking a different approach to it so um, we've had some producers that say because i'm trying this 
and I want to see if I can do it completely free of inputs. And that's where they're making up a lot of that cost. You have extra seed costs because you're planting something else. Um, you're planting two crops instead of one, but you're saving a lot of times maybe an herbicide pass, so time and money there. Uh, but you have an extra harvest, so there's additional cost there. But by and large, I guess, you know, when you lay everything out, we've seen in our trials anyway, any, anywhere from the relays have almost always performed two to five times higher than monocrop soybeans. And that's looking at the net profit per acre. So, you know, the, the monocrops, I don't think we've ever had where monocrop soybeans didn't outperform the relay soybeans in terms of yield. So almost all of our trials so far, except the one that I just mentioned a bit ago, is, have seen some sort of yield drag on the soybeans. But you're making up for it in the, the cost savings for, if you, especially if they're reducing inputs. And um, not, not all guys are doing that, but uh, a lot of them are. And then also that additional um, crop far exceeds that. And you know, even one producer two years ago in the trials last year, I should say, I think they were like $150 a bushel or an acre higher than their monocrop soybeans. And, and they said, well, yeah, but what about now that beans have jumped, you know, almost doubled. And so they quite did the math and they were still, you know, it was still more profitable to do the relays. So, um, you know, that was a question that I had. Are people going to want to do this if if soybean prices jump? But um, it still seems to be more profitable. And I hope, I hope, you know, it's my goal, you know, to hopefully we can get to a point where there's not a yield drag. You know, can we figure out the system and, you know, figure out the equipment and figure out some of those, you know, the best ways to do this um, so that there's not a yield drag uh, for soybeans and you can, you know, then it'd be even more Sure. Yeah. So what do you think is driving that yield drag? Is it the timing or, or what? It's hard to say. I wish I knew the answer, but, um, and it could be if, you know, everybody has a little bit different idea and we just don't have enough data to really definitively say, well, it's definitely the crop spacing. It's, de you know, it's definitely this, definitely that. So it's hard to say. Um, I would say on average, we probably see somewhere around 10 uh, bushels an acre yield drag. Like I said, that's not anything that can't be made up and then some from, from having the cereal left. So this year, I would guess we're going to see some problems because of moisture deficiency for the soybeans um, in some places. That would be my guess. And that's going to be a big, a big hurt. But, um, you know, I, I don't really know. We don't really, we just don't have enough data to definitively say, well, it's definitely this and that's what we need to look at. But um, it seems to be you know, moisture is definitely an issue. I think spacing could be, you know, I think there's probably an ideal spacing and then obviously varieties is, um, you know, consideration as well. Um, looking at both, both species, you know, both crop types um, that you're gonna end up with out in the field. And um, I'm sure we'll, at some point, we'll figure out what the best combination is. But right now we just don't have enough data to definitively say, like this one's better than the other. And yeah. So hopefully we'll get there. And, you know, there's a guy in Wisconsin that's been doing this probably longer than anybody. He's been doing it almost 15 years now, and he does it on like almost 800 acres of relays every single year. 
and I don't think he's experiencing any yield loss. Like he has the system dialed in very, you know, he grows high bushel and acre wheat and high bushel and acre soybeans and does it together. And so you mentioned that some farmers are able to reduce inputs. Can you just talk about that a little bit? What sort of reductions are they seeing or what are, what are they doing? Well, I think this goes along to almost more so uh, with the mindset change of thinking about production in a regenerative way, right? So you're thinking about if I'm trying to build my soil health and encourage uh, mycorrhizal relationships, and so you want the the fungus in the soil and you want to build a microbial community, then you, you don't want to be using pesticides and fungicides because you're killing the very things that you're trying to promote in the soil. So I think some of that goes along with the mindset change. The herbicide thing, I think, and we've seen everybody do a little bit different and it's kind of what everybody's comfortable with. But ultimately, that's something that costs money. So if we can utilize, you know, extra plants growing in the system to suppress weeds versus having to, you know, cause the herbicides in the system to, and that's another disturbance, right? So getting back to soil health. Um, so I think it, it's a comfort level thing, but those are the, you know, maybe the, the quickest ways that people can save on inputs. And there again, we just don't have enough data to say what's the best combination, but, you know, it really just comes down to the each individual's comfort level in terms of what they're willing to part with. We're kind of like in an input-dependent system, I would say, a lot of farmers, in, especially in Iowa. And so it's, it goes, I think uh, a lot of that comes back to a mindset change of thinking about production differently and, and knowing that maybe we can get by with a little bit less than what we're putting on to get the, at the end of the day, a better bottom line. It may not be the best yield in the county, in the area, but at the end of the day, how much money you make after the bills are paid. So that's what we're trying to kind of look at. Yeah, absolutely. And then you said something earlier, you talked about sort of analyzing this in terms of scalability. So talk about that a little bit. What would make it scalable or not scalable? Is that, does that have to do with the labor or what? Um, so in, you know, right now, it's very easy to grow corn and very easy to grow soybeans in Iowa. But if I grow uh, cereal rye or winter wheat, there's nowhere within two hours for me to take that seed and sell it as a crop. So that's a challenge. So for scalability, that market is, you know, the system for anything other than corn and soybeans does not exist in a way that allows people to just easily scale up and say, if I plant this, I know exactly where to do it in the fall. So that, you know, that's an issue is how do we handle it and how do we, you know, we have a few people doing this right now and, and a lot of them aren't gotten creative as far as how they have that second crop, you know, if they're going to sell it to their neighbors as bin run cover crop seed or whatever, like that's an option, but everybody in the county is doing this. Well, that's not going to work. So uh, you run out of that, that small market pretty quickly. And so it's got to be something that can be scaled up that there's a high demand for a lot of, a um, lot of acres of, of some other crop that's not a corn and corn or soybeans. So that's something that, you know, that's that's a pretty big hurdle to tackle is like this kind of like system of infrastructure that needs to be created essentially, or at least adapted to handle other crops besides corn and soybeans. And I think the interest level from the producer end of things is there, like to create 
a fairly substantial demand or you know supply of small grains. It's just that the demand isn't there yet to meet that to take up that supply. And in Iowa, we'll never be able to grow the quality of small grains as they can, like in you know Kansas or Nebraska or the Dakotas or Southern Canada. But at some point, the cost of transport count for something. You know, and the goal for the state, I what I always tell people is the goal for the state is. 12 and a half million acres of cover crops. That's the goal. And for the Iowa Nutrient Reduction Strategy. And you know, right now where I think we're maybe a little over a million acres, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, so we have a long ways to go and that's a lot of seed. So where is that gonna come from? Are we gonna ship it in from Saskatchewan or are we gonna grow it you know, locally? But we can't grow it locally if you know there's gotta be somebody to clean it and distribute it and resell it. So. Um, that's kind of one of the questions that is a fairly substantial question outside of the, the production side of things that, that really needs to be answered. And getting into the project, I thought it was going to be more based on, you know, some of the risk stuff, the lack of insurance, but that doesn't seem to be near as big of issue as the marketability side of things. And so, you know, that's one of the things that we're starting to research now is the feasibility of how do we develop those markets and I think there's a lot of interest and it's just going to be a matter of getting that support and um, hopefully a few people looking at it as a as an opportunity to add a aspect to their business or start a new business and, and I think things will take off from there. Mm-hmm. Oh wow that's really cool. Um, yeah so now I know that you personally are very interested in the water quality and flooding issues um, that's sort of your background um, so just talk about how that intersects with the multi-cropping. Well, obviously, Iowa's a, you know, it's an agriculturally dominated state. We have like 25 to 30 million acres in production. And a lot of the watersheds that, and even in the northeast part of the state where production intensity isn't as high as like central Iowa, you know, a lot of our watersheds here are 45 to 60% row crop production. And so if you're talking about half the land in a watershed in, in production, then that means whatever, you know, whatever happening on those fields is very impactful to that watershed. And so if we can, you know, look at ways that are reducing those chemical inputs, means that fertilizer is not there to get washed downstream. And if there's a plant that's taking up those nutrients, then they're holding it there. The number one export for the state of Iowa, our number one export is soil, a little over two times by weight higher than our corn exports. We're the number, yeah, we're the number one corn producer in the country. So that tells you how much soil is leaving our state. Um, and the reason we have good production in the first place is because we have good soil and we're shipping it out at a rate higher than we're shipping out the crop. That's not sustainable. So, I mean, if, if we're able to hold the soil on the ground, I mean, that's not just more profitable now, but that ensures that we are still a productive state, you know, in, in three decades, you know, so it's protecting that future of, of why we have good production here in the first place. And then from the flood aspect, that's just, you know, it's all it's all tied together. Um, you know, the, I always kind of think of it as, you know, dead soil is like the pot, potted plant you have in your house, you know, that you've had for a long time and you go on vacation and you come back and, you know, that's not healthy soil, it's, it's artificially fertilized. And so it doesn't function, it functions more like a tabletop, you know, back from vacation you pour water in that plant and it just like runs off the top of it and it doesn't soak any of that in and that's what happens in our watersheds um you know it gets dry and then we get 
six inches of rain. And geez, he, he, none of that's soaking in. And it ends up just running off and causing, causing major floods. And we know that if we can infiltrate more of that, like, you know, a natural system would, then, then that will have a huge impact on flooding. It's really hard to quantify, which is why we're working with some really smart people at, you know, the University of Iowa and Iowa Flood Center. And they are able to then quantify that and say, look, if you, you know, if we could, if everybody in this watershed did cover crops and no-till, we could reduce, um, you know, flooding by 20 to 30 percent, you know, even on our largest floods, which would be, you know, that's the difference between, well, the river, you know, the river is still going to come up and it's still going to get dirty, but it's, it's not going to come up as much where people are sandbagging and evacuating and buying out homes because they got flooded and are destroyed. So that's a, that's a huge impact, you know, if we could have that big of impact that some of the watersheds that we live in. So that's our, that's our goal. Yeah, absolutely. The only other thing that dawns on me is the nutrient reduction strategy for Iowa. Is this, do you see this being impactful in that regard? Well, and that's where it, you know, whether it be flooding or water quality or soil health, it's kind of however you want to talk about it or whichever issue you want to focus on, it's all the same. So if we have to do things differently. If we do things differently, all of those things will get better. Yeah. Um, you know, to try and put numbers on it, that's, that's to kind of prove things, you know, with decision makers and, and people that, that are, you know, deciding you know where to put their funding but um, ultimately if we do things a little bit differently we could have a, a major impact on all of those things and it really just comes back to the soil and it doesn't matter it, you know, pick your issue um, you know if it's carbon if it's uh, nutrient density in our food if it's soil health if it's water quality if it's flooding you know it all comes down to kind of the same conversation of, of how we get there. Absolutely. Okay. Well, then to wrap this up, you kind of talked about publishing your data. What's the, what is the strategy or the plan with that? Yeah, so we, uh, we're pretty active on social media is how we're putting out a lot of our information. So um, uh, at multi-Iowa is the handle for both Facebook and Twitter as we're putting a lot of things out. And like I said, we have quite a following. It's interesting. We have followers from all of the inhabited continents, and, um, and they, I don't think we have any followers from Antarctica yet, but everywhere else, we have people following along, and, and um, a lot of them are doing similar things in their, in their part of the world, so that's pretty cool. You know, as we get, you know, data every year and then um, keep building on that, that's where we try and release some of that stuff so, so that people can see it. We'll probably be creating a website at some point once we have more information to publish, so. But for now, mostly just done social media. Okay, good. Well, this has been really great, Ross. I appreciate your time so much and um, keep doing the good things that you're doing. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, you bet. Thanks to Ross Evelsizer for this conversation about the Multicropping Iowa Project. To listen to more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies, please visit notillfarmer.com forward slash podcasts. Once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, The Andersons, for helping to make this no-till podcast series possible. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please feel free to email me at jgerlock at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2404. 
If you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or the Google Play Store to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our no-till insider daily and weekly email updates and dryland no-tiller e-newsletter. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at no-till farmer with farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and our no-till farmer Facebook page. For our entire staff here at no-till farmer, I'm executive editor Julia Gerlach. Thanks for tuning in.